Welcome, boys and girls, to the silliest show in the stratosphere. Have a hankering for hilarity? A desire to be delighted? Well, just one shiny nickel will gain you admittance to the George Sanders Show. Your one-stop shop for Keystone Cops, weasels that pop, and I think I should stop, but I won't. Not until you've laughed till you've cried or you've got a face full of pie. With me on this loco locomotive is the stand of my ollie, Sean Goof Troop Gilman. Hello, Sean. Hi. <laughs> Today, tying in with Seattle's Sif Cinema Series Slapstick Savants that runs August 23rd through the 29th and will feature films from Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd, The Three Stooges, Laurel and Hardy, and the Marx Brothers, we'll be tackling the Laurel and Hardy feature, Sons of the Desert. Speaking of deserts, we'll also discuss Elaine May's infamous film Ishtar, which recently came out on Blu-ray. In addition, we will be surveying the career of the Brothers Marx and selecting our Cinema Central Slapstick films. Okay, Sean, I've talked enough for one episode. Let's say we hear a clip from Ishtar. Telling the truth can be bad news. Telling the truth can be bad news. Telling the truth can be... Telling the truth can be good news. Telling the truth is a bad idea. Telling the truth is a difficult problem. Telling the truth, telling the truth is a is a scary. Telling the truth is a scary predicament. Telling the truth is a bitter herb. Telling the truth is a dangerous tunnel. When you get out of that tunnel, it's a bitter black life ahead. Forget herb. I never heard of a hit that had the word herb in it. Telling the truth is a dangerous thing. Dang- dangerous. Telling the truth can be dangerous. dangerous. What? Danger. Telling the truth can be dangerous. Telling the truth can be dangerous business. Telling the truth can be dangerous business. Why? 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 Telling the truth can be dangerous business because if yourself, because you if don't you know t- why. Huh? Well, I'm just giving you what the idea is. Telling the truth can be dangerous business. If you don't know yourself, then you don't know why. Oh, is that brilliant? So for years, I was convinced that the only people in the world that liked Ishtar were actually related to me. My my mom, my sister, and I saw movies all the time when I was a kid. And we saw Ishtar in the theater, and we thought it was hilarious. We saw it, you know, maybe two or three times in movie theater in 1987 and then the following year when it came out on on videotape we actually bought the vhs tape and i don't know if you remember this but in the late 80s vhs's were there wasn't really a a sale market for videotape like it just wasn't a thing that people thought that people would be interested in actually buying and owning movies for some reason for you know it took like 20 years for people to figure that out anyway vhs tapes were really expensive they cost like Initially, they cost like a hundred bucks. I think by the time that we got them, they cost like fifty dollars a piece for a VHS tape of, of Ishtar, and and that's what my sister and I got for Christmas that year. Like she got the Princess Bride, and I got Ishtar, <laughs> and we watched those tapes over and over and over again, and and absolutely loved them. But everybody else in the entire world apparently hated Ishtar, so it was very disillusioning for young, you know, eleven, twelve year old Sean to see that that this thing that that you know my family loved, and we showed it to our relatives, and they. Loved Loved it too. At least they said they did. Was so hated by the world at large. And then, as you know, I I, I grew up. You know, poor you know cynical disillusioned me. I grew up and I got into started reading film criticism. And then 
uh, one day when I was in my early 20s, I bought a, a book of film criticism by Jonathan Rosenbaum. And one of his pieces in there claimed Ishtar as a neglected masterpiece. It was a great movie that got a bum rap by the, the Hollywood studio machine. And I was instantly in love with this film critic who recognized that, <laughs> that we were not wrong, that Ishtar was a great movie. But that was 15 years ago. And the, uh, the onslaught of negativity towards Ishtar continued until now. It's finally gotten a revival. <laughs> 25 years later, it screened in New York last year. There was, or two years ago, there were Q&As with Elaine May. It's finally getting the critical rehabilitation it deserves. And just this last week, it, it finally got a Blu-ray Blu release after having never been available on DVD. So I'm really excited to make <laughs> you watch it and see what you think about Ishtar. Well, you know, uh, maybe this is why we're kindred spirits, Sean, because... Um, I had never seen Ishtar, um, but the one person that I knew who saw Ishtar and really, really liked it was my mom, who, you know, a few times I remember um, in my childhood, she saying, I don't know why everybody's so mean to Ishtar. It's not that bad of a movie, <laughs> you know? Um, she seemed kind of hurt by it. Um, you know, so I, you know, I didn't go into Ishtar expecting a bomb, obviously, and you know there has been this critical rehabilitation. You know, um, the back of that Blu-ray has a, you know, a lengthy quote from Nathan Rabin from you know the AV Club, who yeah, but his his whole thing is is trash cinema, writing about terrible movies and then elevating them to to some standard. Of well, purpose. I think that's kind of simplifying what he does. I mean, he he goes he finds movies that are neglected and he. And, and then he goes through them and decides whether or not they are in fact trash or if they're you know they're good. Yeah. You know, so, but anywho, um, Ishtar's not just like a movie that's so bad it's good. No, 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 no. It's no, a no. great movie. No, 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 not at all. Um, but talking about it now, I feel like now we've reached this point where there is this rehabilitation going on, and people might be defending it a little too strongly. And this is just going off of my first impression of the film, seeing it um, just recently. Um, but I think it's good. It's, it's a good film. I, I laughed a lot. I laughed out loud several times. Um, I don't think it's a masterpiece. I don't think it's, you know, the Shroud of Turin or something of comedy films that, you know, was found in the desert or whatever. But But it doesn't deserve the critical drubbing that it received for the last 25 years. I was reading up about it after I watched it, and there was a quote from Gary Larson from The Far Side where he said that um, he had done this strip where it was the video store in hell, and all they had was copies of Ishtar. And he said that he drew that strip without having actually seen Ishtar, and then he saw it on a plane like a couple years later, and he said oh, I feel really bad now. That wasn't fair. That movie's pretty good, you know? Um, Gary Larson, a great human being. Uh, yes, absolutely. And the far side of everything. Uh, yeah. Uh, that and Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think Ishtar's, it's, it's fun, it's funny, um, and there's some great, great things about it. Um, but I also, you know, I don't think it's as good as some of the films we'll be talking about later in the show when we talk about, you know, great comedy. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's not duck soup. <laughs> it's certainly not duck but soup. But I think, I think it's, you know, I think it's the equal of Sons of the Desert. <laughs> I think they're very Which close. Which is a movie that I also really liked. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I gave a half a star rating better, you know, um, to 
Sons of the Desert. But yeah, they're they're both very you know solid comedies, um, and it's hard to you know kind of critically analyze comedy, you know, for the most part, because, you know, it's all, what do you think is funny, for the most part. I mean, there are certain comedies, um, like The Big Lebowski or something, where you can analyze the filmmaking because the filmmaking is so incredibly strong, um, and the Coen brothers are really great filmmakers. And Elaine May is a very great filmmaker, too, and I think this story is really well written, um, and I think it's filmed very well and stuff, but it does boil down to what do you think is funny. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you can't you can't criti- critically analyze what is funny. Right. You can you can analyze how jokes work, and sometimes that's interesting. And you can an- analyze the other things that are going on in a movie, like the subtext, yeah, or even just you know the construction of the text and the, yeah, and sure. the plot structure and things like that. But whether or not it's funny, that's going to be kind of up to you. Like yeah. I I don't know how a human being cannot think that that the line "telling the truth is a bitter herb" is not funny. <laughs> no, I. But you know that you know these things are subjective. Well, I got really annoyed because I was watching it. I got home from work um, before my girlfriend did, and I was watching Ishtar by myself. And she came in. Um, I think the maybe the last half hour, last twenty minutes, and she just sat in the other, you know, the other side of the room with the laptop doing other things, which she does often when I'm watching a movie, and you know things are fine. And as soon as Ishtar ended, she said. I've I've sat through you watching a number of movies, but that was the most annoying thing I've ever heard. And I I tried to explain to her why that was a totally misguided judgment on the film because she doesn't know what the plot is, she doesn't know what the story is, she doesn't know what's going on. Um, she refused to listen to me. She said, "I don't care." It was super annoying, and I was like, "That's the point. Like they're terrible songwriters." And yeah, know, well, we should set up the the plot of the movie. We should set up what the movie's about because if we're gonna if we're going to talk about it, we should set the scene. So, uh, Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman are aspiring songwriters who are just terrible. They're really bad. And after a couple of, uh, of failed open mics, they, they get an agent who gets them a booking in Morocco, which is right near the fictional country of Ishtar, which is apparently a, a battleground between uh, indigenous communist left-wing revolutionaries and the Emir and the American CIA and various other foreign services and the Russians are there. The Russians are there. Yeah. The yeah, it's it's the eighties, right? Yeah. So they 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 somehow get get caught up in this in this mix of Cold War interventions in a Middle Eastern country while remaining completely clueless of everything that's around them. So it's it's LA May envisioned it as a riff on like the the Bing Crosby Bob Hope. Uh, Road to Morocco type movies where you have like these two dim-witted guys that get into the situation that they don't really understand and through, you know, no intentions of their own end up solving the big problem. Right. I mean, which is a standard comedy setup. So much of the, the commentary about the movie as it's getting rehabilitated focuses on like the Cold War aspect of it. And it's basically just everybody is an idiot and, and, and nobody really knows what they're doing. So it's a very broad satire about politics in the 80s. Like, uh, I actually thought Point Break was a more pointed satire of Reaganism than than Ishtar. Sure. Um, but the best part of the movie for me is the first half hour, where it's a, a series of flashbacks setting up how, uh, how Warren Beatty and, and Dustin Hoffman met and just how miserable they are. And yet they, they, continue, they want to continue on anyway. 
because, you know, being songwriters is their dream. They want to be Simon and Garfunkel and they will be Simon and Garfunkel regardless of how untalented they are. Yeah. Uh, and this is why I think the movie isn't as, as, uh, you know, great as, as people are starting to make it out to be, because I think that first half hour is fantastic. I mean, that was when I was, I mean, laughing my ass off. And once they get to Ishtar, um, it's still enjoyable, but it definitely has its, uh, slow moments, uh, in that period. Um, but that first half hour where you see them, um, meeting each other (laughs) and writing these ridiculous songs that are just terrible. I mean, they're just terrible. Uh, my favorite, as you know, uh, is uh, Wardrobe in Your Heart, which we, we hear just fleetingly. Warren Beatty's on the couch, and he's writing it. I can't remember the lyric exactly, but God. It's like, open up your wardrobe. Yeah. And like, you uh, try she on says, your uh, Come on, there's a wardrobe of love in my eyes. <laughs> come on, come in, look around, see if there's something your size. Yeah. I mean, it's so bad. Um, and then seeing their performances of these things in these you know little bars and, and restaurants and stuff. Um, it, it's just, it's it's comedy heaven right there. So, as a uh, as a former aspiring musician and current aspiring <laughs> musician, did you did you relate at all to uh, Rogers and Clark? Former aspiring musician. Um, I don't know. Are you are you st- currently an aspiring musician? So uh, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm still I'm still working on the concept rap album for my dad, where I've written uh, three and a half songs so far. But you've played shows in, in yeah, yeah, small yeah. clubs. No, it actually did. It, it did kind of hit home <laughs> a little bit. Um, the the whole you know sitting there like um, trying to find the perfect line for something um, with your you know partner in crime or whatever. I remember doing that you know, and uh, the the one I remember um, I was in a band called the Clumsy Bears uh, for like six months, and we were writing a theme song and. And the band is called the Clumsy Bears, you know, we're, we're the Clumsy Bears, we're in your hair, something stupid like that. But I remember laboring over the second verse of this song for, like, I swear it was a couple of days, like, trying to get the right words about being a band called the Clumsy Bears. And, and then looking back, it's like, that's the most ridiculous thing I could have spent my time doing. But it was also the most fun I've ever had in my life. So, um, so seeing them do that, yeah, it, it's a little bit, it hits close to home. Um, and it actually does well up certain emotions in me um, that are all enjoyable. You know, I mean, it, at the time it might have been painful, but uh, yeah, I, I think they really capture um, the nature of songwriting in this movie. I really think they do. Yeah, and you know that just that yearning to express yourself artistically, like they they have like this they have this existential philosophy that's filtered through their own you know stupidity. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it comes out in really profound ways. Like, they're always talking about how they don't want to live lives of quiet desperation. And uh, there's a great... They, I, even though I don't think they know what that even means. No. You know? <laughs> that ain't poverty. <laughs> uh, there, there's a, a flashback scene where uh, uh, Dustin Hoffman has, has climbed out onto a ledge, and he's very depressed because uh, Carol Kane has left him. Uh, can I can I interject for a second? Sure. One of my qualms with this movie: if you're putting Carol Kane's name in the opening credits, I want more than two minutes of Carol Kane because I love Carol Kane. I'm I'm right there with you. Okay. <laughs> I once wrote, uh, I once wrote a poem to Carol Kane on acid. <laughs> 
Okay. We're really getting into it today. All right. <laughs> Dustin Hoffman's climbed out on the ledge because Carol Kane has left him, and, and Warren Beatty goes out to, to try and, and talk him back, and, and he tells him how much he admires him. Because, you know, because he, you know, keeps trying to be a songwriter, even though he has no talent for it. And he says, you know, you'd rather have nothing than settle for less. Yeah, and that's a great line. And it's it's so brave to to just refuse to settle, <laughs> even though how, you know, lonely and miserable and awful your life is, you still will not settle for less. Right. That's it's admirable. It certainly is. Um, yeah, that's a wonderful scene. Um and uh, Beatty's delivery of that line is he—it's it's like a high wire act that he's doing right there because it's such a stupid thing to say, but he says it with such conviction. He's so earnest. You buy every moment. With and then Warren Beatty is not really that kind of actor. Like he's played dumb before, like in uh, in Shampoo. He's kind of a, a, a vapid like hairdresser. Yeah, but he. He's never as 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 dumb as he is in Ishtar, and I think he's great. And uh, she casts the characters against type because uh, Warren Beatty is like the, the is uh, plays the the stiff, awkward, horrible with women, really not smooth guy. Whereas Dustin Hoffman is like supposedly the ladies' man. Yeah, there's that, that great people, scene. People call me the hawk. <laughs> there's that great scene where they go out trying to pick up chicks. Um, and afterwards, you know, Beatty's uh, complaining about his, you know, lack of luck in that department. And, and he says he says to Dustin Hoffman, if only I looked like you, you know, I, I could get women. You know, you're, you're small and compact like a sports car. I, I mean, that is hilarious stuff right there. And I think, I think um, Beatty's the stronger of the two in this movie. Like, when, uh, when they're separated, because once they get to Ishtar... Um, it, the movie kind of splinters off and follows both of them as they, you know... They interact with Isabella Johnny and... and Charles Grodin is the yeah. CIA agent. And um, and so they're kind of split off from each other um, not for significant periods of time in the second half of the movie. And I was always much more happy inhabiting the uh, Warren Beatty world than the Dustin Hoffman world. Hoffman's good, he's fine... Um, but Beatty is just a revelation in this thing. I mean, he is so freaking hilarious. Yeah. I mean, he's great. I, I really like the, the Hoffman scenes with Charles Grodin. I, li- I love Charles Grodin. The the thing for me with the, the scenes in the desert, mm-hmm. what makes it great and almost elevates it to the level of the first half hour of the movie is the blind camel. <laughs> the blind camel is, it's a, it's a really nice touch. Watching them walk the blind camel through the tight, you know, narrow alleyways um, in town, and and it, you know, knocking people over in its path, and just you know, and then it's got a toothache too to top it off, which is also really it's got a bad tooth. Yeah, <laughs> and they're both really taking care of it and stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. And it's there's really there's like some classic comedy bits with the blind camel. I mean, it's it's like walking into things. There's there's two scenes with with Charles Grodin. He asks Hoffman, you know, what's what's the matter with this camel? Is he blind? And Hoffman says, yeah. Yeah, and Grodin does this great double take that, you know, we'll talk about double takes and stuff when we get to Laurel and Hardy, but it's just sure. classic visual comedy. And there's also, uh, the, the camel steps on his foot, but he's, uh, he's given directions like, move the camel, move the camel. And Hoffman's like, move the camel where? Anywhere, it's on my foot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Grodin, Grodin plays a good straight man here. Um, and uh, Isabella Johnny's kind of a blank, though. She is. Um, you know, the only other film I've seen her in, can you guess what it is? Uh, Herzog's Nosferatu. Yes. <laughs> um, and it's very interesting to see her here, because 
those two movies could not be more different from each other. Yeah. Um, well, Herzog Nosferatu is is really funny, but it's it's Herzog funny, not you know. No, that's true. Not, not Elaine May funny. Yeah, it's it's a different kind of funny. Um, and you're right. Yeah, she's kind of you know just there, uh, but they do. They do really uh, use her well in her first few scenes, especially the scene where Beatty tackles her as she's breaking into the hotel room to get her luggage back, and he thinks she's a boy, and he's like straddling her, and he he's like she's like talking, trying to explain who she is or whatever, and he's he's just holding onto her breasts, and he's like, "Wait a minute, what's going on here?" And it's just, it's just awkward and really hilarious, and. You know, yeah, she's, he's trying to give her life lessons. Right. <laughs> what kind of life is this? Yeah. Breaking into hotel rooms. And speaking of the music, uh, you know, there's obviously the superficial, you know, there's the, the music that's, um, we see them writing in the film, which was co-written um, by Elaine May. May and uh, Paul Williams, who are most famous for writing The Rainbow Connection and the score for The Muppet Movie, and also Brian De Palma's Fan of the Paradise, which is another crazy musical. Um, the three movies that could not be more different, and they're all phenomenal. So, yeah, yeah, Paul Williams it, is the best. And and but I liked, I really like some of the incidental music that's used here too. Like during the chase, um, they're being chased by somebody. I can't even remember. The, 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 there are a variety of secret agents that are misidentified by CIA agents by their clothing. Right. Yeah. The Russians are dressed as there's tourists, like, and the, the Cubans are dressed as. Russians, and, yeah, it's, and it's, the guys in the Hawaiian shirts are... Yeah. Uh, but there's this really cool, like, blending of, like, Middle Eastern rhythms with, like, this totally 80s synth score. Well, it's the the theme is, uh, in air quotes, Arabized version of the song uh, Telling the Truth is a Dangerous Business. Yeah. So it's got, like, the, the Middle Eastern, like, uh, I don't know if it's a sitar, but Middle Eastern style guitar, it's like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> But it's Sean same, Gilman, musician, it's, right the, here. it's the same. It's the same theme as their like big hit song, right? But filtered through the the score of the movie. Well, and it and it it kind of perfectly personifies the film, uh, just blending these two worlds, and it totally rocks. Like <laughs> when you take when you take the performers out of the song, it's totally cool. Like I was like, this song is kicking. What's going on? Like I'm like. Like it, it gets your heart pumping. They're you know running through these, uh, running over these rooftops, and uh, and you know it kind of sounds you know it kind of has the sound of uh, "Don't Come Around Here No More," which had that like uh, Tom Petty's. Um, it, there was like a synthesizer uh, sitar going on in that too. You know, um, I love that song. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. So you know what this movie actually really reminded me of. Speaking of the Coens, is uh, "Burn After Reading," which has a similar kind of you know. Idiots that get way in over their head in some kind of government thing. Um, yeah. Even though the the plot of Burn After Reading, they think they have secrets when in fact they don't have anything. <laughs> They've got diddly squat. Whereas in Ishtar, they're they're actually kind of the fate of the um, whole war is hinging on these two, you know, buffoons. Yeah, well, well, what I think makes Ishtar much, much, much better than Burn After Reading is is that heart that it has at the center of it. Like it's not just skewering idiots. It really, Elaine May really wants you to love these guys, even though they're stupid. And that's kind of Elaine May's thing is, is, uh, I've seen three of her four movies. Each of them is putting you in the position of being sympathetic towards an unlikable character. 
because, you know, the character either does, you know, horrible things or they're just really, really dumb yeah. and really mean. And she wants you to like them anyway and she wants you to find them funny. And, you know, that, that to me is, is a great thing. Like, I love filmmakers that make me want to sympathize with people that I probably shouldn't be sympathizing with just because they're human. Like, she brings this humanity to the stupid characters that the sure. Coens do not. Yeah. I, the, the, human, the Coens are, are satirists, whereas Elaine May is not really being satirical towards Rogers and Clark. She's being satirical towards Cold War politics. Right. Well, yeah, I, I know what you're saying. I, I think... I mean, that gets thrown around at the Coens a lot, and I don't know if we want to go on this tangent about the Coens or whatever, but I, I feel like they, they do a little bit of that, too, in some of their things, and I actually really enjoyed Burn After Reading more on the second viewing. I don't know if you've seen it more than once. No, just, just the one time. Um, it actually plays better, to me at least, the second time. Obviously, they, you know, what I like about the Coens film... Uh, yeah, I don't mean that as a blanket statement. Sure, sure, sure. Like, I think Raising Arizona is more Ishtar-like than... Sure. Burn after reading. Sure. Uh, no, there's definitely a black heart at the uh, the center of burn after reading. Um, but what I do love about burn after reading is that everybody's an idiot. Like they have nobody knows what the hell's going on, and it's just totally ridiculous. But anyway, that's a digression. Elaine May, you know, started out as a writing partner and comedy partner with Mike Nichols, and and then she only directed four films. Um, yeah. Well, she she was a very slow worker. Yeah. And had a reputation for being uh, uh, difficult to work with from studios, and then and that was in the seventies when she was making movies. She made uh, a New Leaf, and then Heartbreak Kid, um, a New Leaf bombed. Heartbreak Kid, I think, was a hit. I'm I think sure. it was decently received. Yeah, it yeah. was. It did okay. Yeah, uh, Mikey and Nikki, I'm not sure about. That's the one I haven't seen. And then there's like a ten year gap leading up to Ishtar, which was a huge fiasco, and she hasn't worked since. Right. As a as a director, she's done uh, screenwriting since then. She got an Oscar nomination for for Mike Nichols' adaptation of Primary Colors. Yeah, but uh, and she appeared. Uh, she was the best thing in Small Time Crooks, Woody Allen's film from two thousand. I haven't seen that one, but I imagine that would not be hard. Yeah, it's it's. I haven't seen it since it came. I saw it in the theater, and uh, it was a pretty unmemorable experience. But Elaine May is really good in it, and I think it might have been her last acting role. I don't think she's done anything since then. Yeah, she uh, she stars with Walter Matthau in A New Leaf, and Matthau, Matthau is always great. Matthau's always great. He's, sure. you know, one of the, the great comic actors of the last half, half century. Uh, Elaine May might be even better than he is in A New Leaf. Like, she, she's just phenomenal, playing this uh, totally clumsy, really mousy woman that uh, Matthau has to marry, otherwise he's going to be poor. So he plans to marry her and then kill her. Awesome. <laughs> I need to see How did you see it? Did you get the DVD? Uh, it, was, it played on TCM a while ago and I oh, recorded okay. it. It's actually on Hulu Plus, though, I think. Mm, I don't have that anymore. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I, I've seen... Uh, obviously, so I've seen Ishtar and I saw The Heartbreak Kid. Um, and I know there's, there's kind of a, a cult of Heartbreak Kid fans, too. Um, but I, I enjoyed Heartbreak Kid, but I didn't really see... What to love about it? I really, I really love the Heartbreak Kid, and and it's kind of that example where where Groden, Charles Groden, while he's on his honeymoon with uh, um, Elaine May's real life daughter Jeannie Boleyn, meets Sybil Shepherd, and and instantly 
falls for Sybil Shepherd because she's like the prettiest girl of all time. Uh, <laughs> she's no Carol Kane, Sean. And then he spends his entire honeymoon uh, trying to, to keep his wife in this room so he can go flirt with Sybil Shepherd, and then he ends up following her back to college and kind of like insinuating her into his life. Yeah, his life gets yeah, him yeah. into her life. Right. Uh, yeah, it's a fine film, um, but like, well, he's a horrible person. He's terrible. Yeah, he's just awful. But you 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 want him to get the pretty blonde girl anyway. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's 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 worth a watch. But I I didn't I didn't quite uh, get totally on board with it. Did you see Ben Stiller's remake? No, <laughs> me neither. <laughs> and I think that's probably for the best. Yeah. So you you prefer Ishtar then? To I do. Pre- I do prefer Ishtar to the Heartbreak Kid. I do. Um, you know, especially that first half hour, which I, you know I I think is flawless. I mean, it really is is well done. It's just everything's firing on you know all cylinders at that point. It's just really great. I I was just so happy to to get the Ishtar Blu-ray and and watch it again, and not only make you watch it, make my wife watch it, but but to just watch it for the first time in probably fifteen years and. Not only did I still think it was hilarious and still think it was a great movie, I still knew all the lyrics to all of the songs, <laughs> which that you know, explains it's just, so much. It's just you know, it's a, a part of my brain that will never be removed. Like there's just an Ishtar section in my head. That's like me and Weird Al, man. It's it's never going away. <laughs> well, with that, uh, that was our discussion of Ishtar, um, and we're going to take a quick break today. We'll be listening to some. Select cuts from a little band from Texas known as ZZ Top. So here's a song called Chic off the album Trace Ombres. back to the show. Uh, this week, the news is going to be a little repetitive uh, for us. We're going to uh, <laughs> go back to the well we've gone to so many times before, but uh, the New York Film Festival just announced their lineup uh, for their little 17-day shindig here at the end of September, um, and there's some really interesting things on here. Um, you know, the new Spike Jones film, Her, is going to be opening there. 
as, as I always say, the new Jim Jarmusch movie, uh, Only Lovers Left Alive, will be playing. Um, James Gray's The Immigrant with Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, we talked about their work together a couple episodes ago. Um, anything yeah. in there that's really jumping out at you, Sean? Uh, there's a lot of stuff here that I really hope makes it to the Vancouver Film Festival, which which I'm going to next month and, and runs at the same time as the, the New York Festival. Um, often there's a lot of overlap there. I'm, I'm, Vancouver's more Asian-focused than New York, but... but uh, New York does have the the Joshenka film uh, Touch of Sin. They've got one of the new Hong Sang Soo movies from this year, uh, Nobody's Daughter Heewon. There's a four hour uh, Filipino adaptation of Crime and Punishment that I really want to see by by Lav Diaz, who's I haven't seen any of his movies, but I've heard lots of great things. Uh, that's called Norte: The End of History. Uh, there's a new Frederick Wiseman film at uh, Berkeley, one of my favorite college campuses. <laughs> <laughs> Go Bears! <laughs> uh, there's a new Claire Denis film, and I'm just about to, to start preparing for a, a podcast on the other podcast I do on um, on Claire Denis. So I'm going to be rewatching all of her movies. So it'd be nice to see uh, to see her newest one as well. So yeah, it's it's a it's a great slate of films, and I'm I'm really hoping to see a lot of these when they make it um, either at Vancouver or just onto you know video. Well, you missed one film in particular. The Miyazaki movie? No, no. The, Miyazaki, the, we talked the, to Miyazaki to death. We've, a little director by the name of James Franco. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I haven't really seen any of, of James Franco's uh, Neither have I. auteur work. No. So, or his more arty movies. I think he's a great actor, though. I really do. I think he's fantastic. Did you, see, you haven't seen uh, Spring Breakers yet, have you? Nope. Oh, He's phenomenal. I got a I got a Harmony Corinne thing that, that makes know. me just not want to watch it. Well, we'll be talking about Gummo in a minute, a different Gummo. <laughs> yeah, um, Gummo's on the uh, uh, Warner Archive is releasing. Oh, Gummo, is it? finally? Yeah. So you I, could, you I don't get think that on DVD. I now. don't think you should uh, watch it, Sean. I don't think you'd like it. I don't think I would either. <laughs> um, Speaking uh, of DVDs, speaking of DVDs, uh, Criterion announced their their latest set of movies, and they got Francis Ha, they got City Lights. Speaking of uh, slapstick greats, uh, but they're also putting out this massive twenty seven disc set of all of the Zatoichi, the Blind Swordsman movies from the sixties and seventies, and that looks really exciting. Yeah, are you, it's a brick. Are you familiar with these Zatoichi films? I'm I'm only familiar with Zatoichi in. The terms of you know pop culture that I've heard referenced to Zadowichi, I've never actually seen a Zadowichi film, um, but you know the references like in Death Proof and stuff. I've always wanted to see Zadowichi, but I think part of the problem for me with that and kind of like Lone Wolf and Cub and those kinds of things is like there's so much of it that it's like really daunting. Yeah, you know. So um, if someone wants to buy me the box set. That's it's actually going for, for pretty cheap considering how much it is. It's, yeah. it's on Amazon for like 150 bucks. But uh, have you seen any of Zadoichi? Uh, the movies have been up on on Criterion's Hulu Plus channel for for quite a while, and I watched the first one, and and it was pretty good. Yeah, it's a, a solid samurai movie. It's not like as you know ambitious as something like Ujimbo or Seven Samurai. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the you know sure. great genre movies of all time, but it was a, a solid, very entertaining, very fun film with a, a surprising amount of darkness. And yeah, Wasn't there a Zatoichi film uh, like six, seven years ago? Uh, Takashi Kitano did a, like a, a new version of it, like his take on the character. Right. That's not really part of the, the series of movies that, that Criterion's right. doing. Um, I, just, I just like it because... Uh, I like complete boxes. 
I like I like complete <laughs> boxes, and I like I like that Criterion is focusing more on the kind of grindhouse side of genre cinema. I like when they do that kind of thing mm-hmm. instead of just sticking to like the big auteur names. I really wish they do the same for Chinese language cinema because there's like three Chinese movies in the entire Criterion collection where there's massive amounts of Japanese, French, German, Italian, and I you know I why do you think that is uh, racism. <laughs> That's got, that's got to be it. That's no, the only explanation. It's because you know Criterion, Criterion started as as Janus films in the in the nineteen fifties, and right. in the nineteen fifties, the the big dominant world cinema world cinemas were were Japan, Italy, Germany, and France, sure. and Sweden, and those are the movies that tend to dominate the Criterion um, releases. They're also the ones that just dominate the art film world in general, and it's still the case uh, because. People who grew up in the 50s and 60s are the ones who run the distributors now, and they're the people who decide what movies to buy and what sure. movies get played in theaters. So if you grew up watching Fellini and Antonioni, then you know in the, when you're in the 70s and the 80s, you're looking for the new Italian movies rather than maybe picking up on the fact that, that Taiwan and Iran and Hong Kong are making much more you know vital cinematic works sure. in, in their time than the European countries were. But it's still much easier to get an Italian film from the 1980s or a French film from the 1980s than it is a Taiwanese film on video. And it's just this massive blind spot Mm -hmm. that we as Americans have. And I think a lot of it is like the East Coast focus um, is more on Europe than it is on Asia. Mm -hmm. But... You know, it's it's this it's a complex interplay between audiences and distributors because distributors won't maybe won't pick up the Chinese film and release it because audiences won't go see it because audiences are used to going to see you know Swedish and French movies because those are the movies that have been given to them for the last fifty years. Yeah. So it's like this is this vicious cycle where great movies are getting ignored. My brother sent me a text after uh, he and I went inside Drug War uh, when I played at SIF couple weeks ago and he sent me a text the next day he said drug wars only made twenty thousand dollars in the u.s <laughs> i said yep yeah i mean there's no reason why every olivier Assayas film gets widely distributed on the art firm circuit in the u.s and maybe four johnny toe movies have right they're both great filmmakers they both make you know popular easy to understand easy to enjoy films that would be perfect for a broader audience but the johnny toe movies don't make as much money yeah yeah and you know that kind of gets to what has been a recurring theme on the show, which is the evils of, of Harvey Weinstein and, and and his attitude towards the Asian cinema that his companies buy up and then recut. And that's kind of the the big topic this week with uh, Wong Kar Wai's Grandmaster coming out in a recut version for U.S. audiences and also his recutting of uh, Bong Joon-ho's Snowpiercer, uh, which we've talked about before. But we're going to get into that on on next week's show and when we actually talk about the Grandmaster. Um, and we will be watching the international cut of the film. Yeah, we'll be watching the the 130 minute version because I don't even know if the new one is opening in Seattle this I week. Think? Yeah, it's not playing. <laughs> yeah, I just I I I want to see the the original version. Absolutely, and you know, as original as any version of a one car line movie can be, because he's notorious for recutting things uh, to the very last minute and beyond. But you know, when the U.S. version comes out, I might see it, but I want to see the the international version first. Absolutely. But we'll get to that next week. This week, we're talking about comedies, and we're talking about slapstick. So let's move on to our Cinema Central slapstick films. Sure. What do you got? 
Well, ah. <laughs> Uh, speaking of slapstick, I just totally banged my knee on the kitchen table here. Um, yeah, this was one I kind of dwelled on for a while because... You put some thought into I, it. I put some thought into this because this I feel a special affinity for this stuff. I grew up watching these movies and I... Kind of like you talking about Ishtar earlier. I, so I grew up watching these things and I just... I thought everybody else did too, um... Because I, I I was literally like weaned on Charlie Chaplin and stuff like that, and um, so I just love these movies with just a, a, a passion, and they're the ones that I always put up at the top because they're not only hilarious but they're also great cinema and stuff like that. You know the, the films I always talk about like Sherlock Junior or Duck Soup or um, you know Gold, The Gold Rush and, and stuff like that, and I decided. What I wanted to find for my cinema essential pick is the purest form of slapstick, where you don't, you're not going to talk about the artistry on display unless it's the physical artistry of the slapstick or whatever. Um, you know, the camera technique doesn't really matter that much or whatever. And so I actually thought you made a distinction between like essential works of cinema and essential slapstick. Exactly, I, that was my thinking exactly. Okay. So like all the Chaplin, Keaton greats, those are just essential movies. Yes, they're not. They're not essential slapstick. If you if you want to show an alien being what a slapstick movie is, I think you could do a lot worse than Fatty Arbuckle, Buster Keaton short The Garage, which I actually just saw uh, a few weeks ago um, for the first time. And it's a short. It's like 20 minutes long. They work in an automobile garage where they fix cars and they rent cars out and stuff. And the thing is just... The purest form of slapstick you can imagine. My review on Letterboxd was roughly, I said, you know, within the first two minutes, there have been pies thrown. By the end of the third, uh, Fatty Arbuckle's covered in oil and it's like in blackface or something. Um, there's tumbling. And by the end of the thing, 20 minutes later, the entire garage is on fire. And in between, there's just chaos and insanity. And it is uproariously funny. I mean, it is just hilarious. Yeah, uh, I took I took the exact same approach, mm -hmm. going for like what is like the purest form of, of slapstick, and, and slapstick to me is is like physical violence in the service of anarchy and just total destruction of of systems and of society, and it's just reveling in that kind of chaos. And and for me, that that film is a, a Laurel and Hardy short called Two Tars, mm -hmm. where Laurel and Hardy play two sailors on leave, and the, it's a two reel short. All the the Laurel and Hardy shorts are two reelers, which means the first reel is ten minutes, second reel is ten minutes, and there's like a narrative split in the middle. Usually, the the first half is in one setting, the second half is the other. So in the first setting, they're like trying to pick up girls and failing miserably and just creating you know destruction and chaos around them. But the second set is the best. They're they're out for a drive out to like this vacation area and there's this big lineup of cars and they get in a fight with the, the driver and the car in front of them and they end up just destroying his car and the car behind them you know just tries to like intervene and they end up destroying his car too so it's just this absolute dismantling of these vehicles and it leads to this massive traffic jam that you know, it was like a, a, an early version of the, the pileup in, in Godard's Weekend. <laughs> or, you know, the kind of... I love car crashes. I love to see cars pile up. I think it's one of the great things that cinema can do is destroy automobiles. So a movie like uh, uh, the original Gone in 60 Seconds, there's a pileup in... Uh, 
one of the the Sam Hung movies where like Jackie Chan is on roller skates through a highway and it leads to this like massive car pile up and it's it's just fantastic and and Two Tars is is just like the purest form of of automobilic destruction and just the complete breakdown of society. Yeah, Two Tars is really really funny. I think it's funny that we both picked films that focus heavily on cars because while the garage doesn't. There, there's a car that completely falls apart. This guy, you know, uh, rents a car, drives out the door, and the entire thing, I don't even know how they did it, but the thing is moving, and then all of a sudden, every piece of the car just falls apart <laughs> in one moment, and it's just, it's crazy. Well, it's, it's great to destroy cars. Just cars are like the ultimate symbol of, of the 20th century modernity. It's it's a machine, but it alienates people, but it, you know, it enables society to, to come together because we can travel vast distances, but it keeps people separate, and it me- leads to the, these massive roads that make cities uninhabitable, but... You know, it's just so much fun to destroy them, and it's just great to see them smash up. And they're great for performing stunts because, you know, the stuntmen and stunt drivers are so well-trained that they can do just spectacular things with cars and and survive. You yeah. know, it's, it's just, it's perfect for movies, and it's perfect slapstick. Well, we'll try and track down both of those shorts and uh, link to them in the in the notes for this show, because they're both, they're both really, really great things. Speaking of comedy, when I say the names Julius, Adolph, and Leonard... What do you think of? I think of the Marx Brothers. <laughs> Good. Uh, the, the Marx Brothers are the topic of our uh, persons of the week this week, uh, since we aren't going to be actually talking about one of their films in depth, um, since we're doing Laurel and Hardy. The Marx Brothers are my favorite comedians of all time, and Duck Soup is my favorite comedy of all time. Uh, it will never be topped. I don't think it's possible um, to do. Um, I hope you feel the same way, Sean. I, I think it's the greatest pure comedy of all time. Okay. Like, there are other movies I think are greater that have comic elements in them, but they are not as as purely comedies as Duck Soup is. I, I, I'll take that. I'll take that. Um, the Marx Brothers, uh, there were actually five Marx Brothers. Um, Gummo left the group before they transitioned to film. They, uh, they started off in vaudeville um, doing song and dance stuff and slowly... I don't think slowly, but they transitioned into doing comedy things, and they, they were started as little kids. Yeah, they were they were very young, not as young as Buster Keaton, who was like days old when he came out on the stage the first time. But they were very young, um, and the group was kind of fluid, you know, in the beginning. Um, I can't remember all of the different changes that happened, but Gummo was involved. Um, I think he was there before Harpo joined the group, and Harpo famously uh, the, the Marx Brothers in film are three distinct personalities and three distinct types of comedy. You've got Groucho, who is a wisecrack, I mean, the quintessential wisecracking jerk, which, you know, Bugs Bunny does a very good Groucho impersonation. And then you've got Chico, who does more of a broad, you know, he's doing a uh, <laughs> an immigrant's comedy, kind of, in a way. Um, he, you know, he plays an Italian and, and he miss understands words and stuff like that. Yeah, it's an, it's an exaggerated ethnic comedy, which yeah. which Groucho is too. He is like an exaggerated like Jewish comedian. Right. And then Harpo uh, famously is is uh, a silent comedian, and that actually wasn't planned. Uh, you know, Harpo his first time on the stage with the brothers in vaudeville, um, he was so nervous, and he and he sang and. And it was a terrible night. And I, apparently, I think he got terrible reviews. They singled him out as, as the weak link in the group or whatever. And he famously said, okay, I'm never going to speak again on stage. And he didn't, you know, um, for the rest of his career. And so the brothers, you know, were kind of, 
you know, going through traveling across the country and, and playing small places, big vaudeville theaters and, and everything in between. Uh, but they didn't really become popular um, until they started their own Broadway shows, um, the Coconuts and Animal Crackers being two of those, which were also their first two features. And famously, they were performing Animal Crackers at night on Broadway while filming their debut film, Coconuts, um, during the day. After the success of Animal Crackers, they moved from New York to Hollywood and they started working on uh, films tailored to their talents. Um, They did um, a series of kind of spoof movies, which I didn't realize were kind of spoof movies until much later because I grew up watching these and so... it you can't saw, be a spoof. You saw the spoof before you saw. Yeah, the exactly. It can't be a spoof of a gangster movie if I've never seen a gangster movie. Um, but now watching them now, it's like, oh, that's what Monkey Business is going for, or you know, Horse Feathers is a sports movie, or Night at the Opera, Night, or yeah, Night in Casablanca. The it's not a hard and fast spoof, really, because the Marx Brothers are always just there amongst the setting, doing whatever they want. Right. It's not like an airplane kind of spoof. Right. It's like uh, they take like the the plot of a of a generic like romantic musical comedy and then they just put the Marx Brothers in at the margin and let them just destroy everything in their path. Yeah. At least that's what they do for the first five films because the Marx Brothers uh, originally were working for Paramount. They did five films in a row, uh, Coconuts, Animal Crackers, Monkey Business, Horse Feathers, and Duck Soup. Um, and they were all hits for the most part, except Duck Soup, which famously bombed uh, like a little bit like Ishtar did. Um, and it kind of wounded the brother's career. Um, Zeppo, the fourth brother that was in the, the first five films, who we don't really need to talk much about because Zeppo never really did much of anything. He was the straight man. And seriously, I've seen all those movies a zillion times, and I was trying to think on the way over here of some Zeppo moment that pops in my head. And the only thing I can remember, really, is at the end of Monkey Business, they're in the barn, and he's fighting for the uh, the girl he loves or whatever, and he jumps from the top part of the barn into this haystack. That's the only thing I can remember about Zeppo in any of those five films. But anyway, Zeppo left the group, and they, they signed with MGM, which is something that uh, Buster Keaton did uh you know, about a decade earlier. Like Keaton, they had an initial success um, kind of making a more straightforward film. Um, Like you were saying, the anarchy of the Marx Brothers kind of overran their first few films. Um, But once they made A Night at the Opera, it was much more the brothers in service to the story. Um, And it's a much more straightforward film. And A Night at the Opera was a huge success and it kind of set the template for everything they did after that. It remains their most popular movie. It does. Which is something I'd like to talk about because I, I I like A Night at the Opera. I think it's it's easily the the best film that they did post the Paramount years. I think everything they did before, including the Coconuts, which is very staged, is better. A Night at the Opera has its. I mean, it's really good. It's really good. Maybe I don't not want, the Coconuts. The Coconuts is. I know you don't like the Coconuts. The, the the musical sequences in that are so bad, and they're just not funny. They're just long and boring, much like the ones in in Night at the Opera. But Night at the Opera has the the stateroom scene. And, oh, Night at the Opera is fantastic, and I'm, I'm not trying to discourage anybody from seeing A Night at the Opera, but. If you want the purity of the Marx but Brothers, but the other the other four Paramount movies, yeah, absolutely, yeah, they're just they're just fantastic. Um, and but Night at the Opera kind of gave them a second life in in cinema, and they made A Day at the Races shortly thereafter, which is also very very good. But then they kind of got straight jacketed and started kind of just going through the motions and everything. It's actually, post- kind of the same the same pattern that Buster Keaton followed when yep. he was at MGM because he did the Cameraman, 
mm-hmm. which is it was still really good. And they did Spite Marriage, which is okay, and then he's just in this series of increasingly terrible, terrible movies that's you know sometimes have great titles like what no beer <laughs> yeah but it's but it's sad to think of someone that was you know such a, an artistic genius being relegated to something and called less no beer and keaton had like personal issues going on there he had like a, a he was in this terrible relationship with his with his wife he uh, had a serious alcohol problem and just his whole ngm period is just this you know it's not just Louis B. Mayer straight jacketing Buster Keaton. Like Absolutely, he, he's not. as much responsible for for the destruction of his career as anyone. Well, and and a similar thing happens with the Marx Brothers because um, they definitely they were very distinct personalities off the screen as well. And Chico um, had a horrible gambling problem um, that that actually forced the brothers to make a lot of their later business decisions just because he was so broke. And the brothers said, "Okay, we'll make." Uh, this movie so that you can get some money because he would just he would between takes he would be gambling on the set I mean he was addicted to gambling um, you and, say Chico or Chico well that's another thing I was going to bring up I grew up saying Chico um, it is Chico but I refuse to acknowledge that just because it, the, it would make the five year old me cry um, so I'm going to keep saying yeah it is Chico but Chico is how I do it one thing I wanted to mention or one person that needs to be mentioned in relation to the Marx Brothers is uh, Margaret Dumont, mm. who uh, is in the first two films, uh, Coconuts and Animal Crackers. She disappears for Monkey Business and Horse Feathers, um, and they substitute her with the blonde and thin Thelma Todd, who's also fantastic. She's a great comedian. Um, but the special relationship, particularly that Groucho has with Margaret Dumont, is one of the greatest on-screen pairings of all time. Um, She returns for Duck Soup and Night at the Opera, too. Um, And the great thing about Margaret Dumont is that she always played like a wealthy uh, socialite. And from all accounts, she was exactly like that in real life. And she famously never understood any of the jokes the brothers were making at her expense, (laughs) which makes her reactions so much better. Um, and, and you can tell watching her and Groucho spar that Groucho loved her so much because she just took everything he said and he said some of the most awful things to this poor woman and her reaction is just phenomenal. And I'm not going to start quoting Marx Brothers because I could do it all day, but God, it, the, the, the <laughs> damage they put this woman through is just amazing and and she's, you know, I think she's much more important to the brothers' success than Zappo is. Certainly. She's one of the great uh, uh, straight men performances of all time, mm-hmm. is, is Margaret Dumont in Duck Soup. The brothers made some curious films later in their career. They did uh, a film called Room Service that was uh, a success for them after a series of failures. Um, and it was actually directed by William A. Sider, who uh, directed uh, the film Sons we'll be talking of the about, Sons of the Desert, which we'll be talking about in a minute. I don't think it's a very good movie. It's, it's based on a play, and the brothers are, are really, you know, straight-jacketed here. Um, they don't really get to perform like they normally do, although there's a young Lucille Ball in it which is worth watching. She's, she's fun in that. The only late Marx Brothers I've seen, like after a day at the races, is The Night in Casablanca. You've never seen uh, At the Circus? No. It's really bad, except for Lydia the Tattooed Lady, which is fantastic. But um, Night in Casablanca is pretty good, um, but it's a pale, pale imitation to, to the stuff that came before. Well, sure. Um, yeah. I didn't, I didn't grow up with the Marx Brothers. I didn't grow up with, with Slapstick in the way you did. Um, 
I discovered the Marx Brothers maybe in like junior high, uh-huh. around the same time as discovering the Monty Python mm-hmm. and just kind of movie comedy in general, Ishtar as well. <laughs> And was just instantly taken with, with Groucho. I just thought everything that he said was was just hilarious. And I would and I would watch his movies all the time. And they when TCM didn't exist then, but the, but the movies would play on like TBS or just on like broadcast television on like a Saturday afternoon. And whenever there was the Marx Brothers on, you know, I flip around and immediately just watch it all the way through the end. And it's just hilarious. So yeah, along with Ishtar, the Marx Brothers are kind of a foundational comedy thing for me. And so later on when I you know started getting into Woody Allen movies, it was his shared love of Groucho Marx that endeared Woody to me. Yeah, absolutely. And one of my favorite moments in all of Woody Allen's uh, films is in Hannah and Her Sisters when uh, Woody's you know despondent and you know suicidal, and he goes to the movies and, and Duck Soup is there, and he watches Duck Soup and it makes everything okay, yeah. you know, and that, that is such a beautiful moment in cinema. Um, I just, I really love it. And he captures what the joy of, of the Marx Brothers is with that. And they're great. So you should, you should definitely seek out, uh, the first seven Marx Brothers movies, uh, if you can. The first five are in a box set, um, which I think anybody should own. I think it should be in every Essential, without a doubt. Exactly. But enough about the Marx Brothers. Let's uh, let's hear a clip from Sons of the Desert, starring another great comedy team, Laurel and Hardy. I wonder where she is. Maybe she went out. I know she went out, but what I'd like to know is where did she went? Maybe she went to the mountains with Betty. That's probably just where she is. She makes me sick. She knew we were coming home today. What did she have to go to the mountains for? Well, if, if she didn't go to the mountains, Muhammad would have to come here. What has Muhammad got to do with my wife? Notes from the clubs. Oh. What's the matter? Honolulu liner sinking. Foundering in typhoon. Passengers and crew on SS Moana in panic as wireless fails. Sister ship Liwana reaches scene of disaster in 90-mile gale. Rescue ship due back in Los Angeles Harbor tomorrow. Huh. Oh, can you beat that? I'm sure glad we didn't go. If we'd have... Okay, that was a clip from Sons of the Desert starring uh, Laurel and Hardy. The two play uh, members of a fraternal organization uh, called the Sons of the Desert. It's kind of like the Masons. And they, at the beginning or of the, the film... The Loyal Order of the Water Buffalo. That's right. Uh, Grand Puba, always running that show. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the film starts with them at the lodge taking an oath um, with the rest of the order to, to go to a convention in Chicago. And... The movie basically hinges on uh, getting permission from their wives to go do this, and Ali can't get permission, and so he fakes a nervous breakdown and has a veterinarian <laughs> come in and tell him he needs to take a sea voyage to Honolulu. And so he uses that as his excuse, but he actually goes to Chicago. The comedy ensues when uh, his wife finds out his plan and the elaborate ways that he goes to keep the ruse going, basically. I mean, it's it's a very thin plot. 
um, that's yeah, used here. It, it starts with a lie and, and escalates as they compound their lies. Right, and the, the comedy comes from how ridiculous this gets, and it gets incredibly ridiculous. Um, Sean, you are more versed in Laurel and Hardy than I am. Um, I've definitely been a fan, uh, you know, I've, I've always really enjoyed the Laurel and Hardy stuff I've seen. Um, I don't think I've seen many of the features. I've seen a lot of the shorts, you know, Music Box and, and um, stuff like that. How does Sons of the Desert hold up in the hierarchy of Laurel and Hardy things to you? Well, here's the thing. is I don't really know that much about Laurel and Hardy. I had never actually seen any of their shorts, really. I kind of half-watched Sons of the Desert before, like when I'm doing other stuff, and, and same with Music Box. But it wasn't until a couple of years ago when... Uh, my wife and I were up at five o'clock in the morning with our, our newborn baby and, and needed something to do. Then we turned on two tars and watched it and just thought it was like the funniest thing in the world that I, um, I went out and bought this, uh, box set, this massive box set of 87 shorts and features by Laurel and Hardy and decided to just start watching them in chronological order, one to 87, and then writing about them as, as I went along. And, uh, so I started this Laurel and Hardy project on my website that's been ongoing for a while now. I haven't I haven't actually updated it for a while, but I went through like the first 14 movies in the set. It's interesting for me because it allows me to do a lot of, uh, a lot of things in just kind of seeing how they developed as a comedy team and also kind of getting inside of how silent comedy, how slapstick, how vaudeville comedy worked and how it translated to cinema how they developed these personas and how it all came together as a comedy team. So, so for this, you know, watching Sons of the Desert is like leaping forward in time, even though it's only made like five years after the last short I saw, it's, it's hugely different. Like these are mature characters with, with uh, mature setups and it's very cinematic. So it's, it's much, much different than the more primitive shorts I have been watching. And it's, it's much better. Yeah. Like it's, it's, just absolutely hilarious. Like I, I really loved Sons of the Desert, <laughs> and I, I, I rewatched the Music Box as well last night, and I really loved that too. Music Box is amazing. Um, I, I had a similar experience uh, you and your wife did um, with the Music Box. My girlfriend and I were watching something. I think we were watching that PBS show on the history of comedy or something that was pretty lame for the most part. But they show an extended clip from the Music Box, and I'd seen it before, but she hadn't, and. She and I were just rolling on the floor. I mean, it was it is so damn funny them trying to get that stupid piano up that set of steps. Um, and yeah, it just you know, there's some things that are eternal. You know, so some you know a lot of cinema is dated and stuff, but comedy like this in its purest form, it'll last forever. Yeah, and comedy teams have kind of died off. Like, when when was the last time we had, like, a really good pair of actors in a comedy team? Like, right. Like, Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. Right. It's mostly, like, ensembles now. You see, yeah, you, you know. Yeah, like the, like, the Apatow group. Right. Where it's a lot of people. But, like, just two people playing off each other. Yeah. That, that's kind of gone away. And and Laurel, uh, Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy are just this archetypal comedy team. Like, one is, is short and thin. The other is big and fat. Uh, one wears a, a hat and a coat that are too small, the other's hat and coat are too big, and then it's reversed with their pants. Right. Like, they're, they're designed to be opposites. But they're both dumb. 
And, you know, this is like the, the key insight to me that kind of unlocks the whole Laurel and Hardy personality came from uh, a commenter on uh, Dave Kerr's website, uh, the uh, DVD reviewer for the New York Times, longtime um, film critic for Chicago Reader. Um, anyway, he was talking about watching Laurel and Hardy movies with his daughter. Daughter's like eight, eight years old. And, and uh, his daughter, you know, came to this revelation. And she's like, these guys are both stupid. <laughs> and and what he said to her is is just like the Rosetta Stone for Lowell and Hardy for me. He said, they're both stupid, but the big one thinks he's smart. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it hinges on. Uh, absolutely. And it's and it's shown in Sons of the Desert to the greatest degree because uh, you, you get that scene where uh, Ollie is telling Stan, you know, to buck up and and don't you know don't take any guff from your wife or whatever, um, and he and he he's so he's got such authority when he's talking to Stan when there's just the two of them, you know, mm-hmm. such authority, and it changes on a dime the minute he gets home. And to me, Oliver Hardy twiddling his thumbs and, you know, moving his hands around like a five-year-old boy, you know, trying he, to get in the... twiddles his tie. That's like his famous gesture. Right. And But there's there's also moments where he's, like, standing next to a wall and he kind of puts his pointer finger on the wall and twists it around like a little boy, you yeah, know, Yeah, he acts like a little child and he acts very effeminate. Yeah. He kind of prances around. And, and to me, and, it is... I could watch him do that forever. I mean, it is yeah. so hilarious to me. I mean, I just... I. He, it's riveting. It's just absolutely riveting. Hardy is uh, is uh, he might be the the first uh, movie star who started in exhibition. Like he started as like a movie theater usher in like his uh, small town in Florida, I think, and then you know just fell in love with movies and eventually made his way to Hollywood and and just broke into them in these little tiny bit roles. Like uh, you know he played like the cop in a in a R game short or something. And then, you know, he just kind of developed this this hilarious comic persona. Laurel comes from a very different background. He was a, a British music hall performer. He was actually an understudy for Charlie Chaplin back before Chaplin moved to the U.S. And he kind of followed uh, Chaplin's model. But it, it took the two of them a long time to form their comic personas. So it, it's not really until 1927 when they got teamed up as a pair and then, you know, in the intervening five years between then and, and Sons of the Desert, where there's this fully formed group, there's a lot of, like, experimentation as they're trying to develop these personas. But always, they're both just remarkably skilled physical comedians. They're just so funny. And, then, um, and that's what's really, you know, fascinating to me about, about watching all of these shorts in chronological order, is just seeing step-by-step how they build up these personas. Well, it, it is interesting, because it, it, it's it's a bit of an anomaly, the, the way that they came to be together. And and like you said, it, it took a long time. Whereas people like Keaton and Chaplin um, and the Marx Brothers, you know, they were honing their craft for a long time, too, you know, in vaudeville and, you know, other stages and stuff. But they seemed more fully formed sooner in their careers. Right. They, they took their vaudeville personas to cinema, whereas Lowell and Hardy grew in cinema itself. Yeah. And, and, you know, the Marx Brothers were brothers. I mean, mm-hmm. they were together 
since you know they were born or whatever, and Stan and and Oliver were were not, and yeah, it, it they they kind of worked together for a bit, and then they kind of went away from each other for a little bit, and then they got back together. Yeah, uh, they they worked at uh, the Hal Roach studio, and, and Roach was an independent producer, uh, like like Max Sennett and, and Keystone, as kind of kind of like competing with the major studios throughout the 1920s. And Roach had this like big stable of performers. He had like like our gang. He had uh, Charlie Chase, who is. Uh, has a sporting role in Sons of the Desert. He's the the guy from the the son of the desert from Texas, Texas that, yeah. that gets he, them into trouble. Yeah, we'll come back to him. <laughs> uh, so what what Roach would do is he would take you know his various performers and mix and match them in different in different shorts. Like in in one he would have like James Finlayson playing with with Stan Laurel, and another would be Charlie Chase and Oliver Hardy, and then mix everybody up and and just kind of. Uh, team these guys up in, in various combinations just to see what worked. And one of his, uh, one of his main directors and like story editors and, and producers working under Roach was Liam McCary, who was, uh, is one of the great comedy directors of all time. He did the awful truth. He did make way for tomorrow, which is not a comedy, but is a great movie. He did, uh, an affair to remember. And, he directed the Marx Brothers' best movie, Duck Soup. He did. He did direct Duck Soup. Um, and it was McCary's idea, supposedly, to team Laurel and Hardy together as, like, an ongoing comedy pair. It's a genius move. It really is. Um, and they really, they really play well together. Let me ask you this, though, because, you know, you do get moments where the two are, are separated in this. Who do you, whose comedy stylings do you prefer? Because they are, they are different styles of comedy. You know, I, I think I think Hardy is is a great actor. He's a great performer, but I think Stan Laurel is a genius. <laughs> I I I like Hardy more. I really do. I think I, I, the thing with me and Stan Laurel, and I, I Stan Laurel is a genius. He's great. Occasionally, his shtick gets a little grating to me. The the whining and yeah, the he does he does the thing that I that I I call in my. Uh, Laurel and Hardy project thing was the, the weepy face where he right. pulls this like really long face and like mimics like he's crying and it's it's really weird and it's and you know what it's like it's like Beaker uh, from the Muppet Show like yeah, he, yeah he's very much he, Beaker's got the long you know the the fuzzy hair and he goes me 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 and it's very much what Stan Laurel does yeah and it's really it's really off putting like we we don't go for for physical comedy of that type yeah anymore. But he so relentlessly uses it in all of his movies. And, you know, as as I'm watching the shorts, initially it's just kind of like a one-note thing. But later on, he starts to use it more self-consciously. Like, he'll, he'll like, do the, the, the weepy face thing for the other characters in the movie, and then he'll give it aside to the audience where he'll smile. Right. So, you, like, you're in on the joke with him. Right. But he's, you know, overreacting on purpose. So, you know, it's... It's I have a complex relationship with the weepy face because it 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 rubs me the wrong way as well. Yeah, but that's not all that Laurel does. No, like, no, no. I mean, he has this. You know, he's really committed to his character, and there's the scene in this um, kind of. I think it's really his only real showcase in this is when he's waiting for his wife to come home because he's locked himself out, and he's sitting in the living room at uh, Ollie's place, and there's this bowl of wax fruit, mm-hmm. and he grabs an apple from from this thing and he takes a bite out of it and he knows something's wrong with it, but he keeps eating the fruit. I, I, I want to talk about that because this is... Uh, I want to talk about some like the gag construction sure. in the film because 
this is like a perfectly constructed gag. You know, he starts eating the fruit, and then we see an insert shot of the label, so we know that it's wax fruit, whereas Stan does not. Okay. And he keeps eating it, and he's, you know, he's like doing like these weird facial things, and he's having trouble chewing it, but eventually he swallows it. And then he takes another bite. Yeah. And we're like, okay, you know, he's going to start to figure out that this is wax, right. he'll like spit it out. But he doesn't. He, no, he, he chews it again, it. you know, he keeps it going. And then he takes a third bite. <laughs> right. And then a fourth. Yeah. And then finally, Hardy comes out and is like, what are you, what are you eating? Like an apple? He says, you idiot. That's imitation. That's wax. And so, you know, you think that's the punchline. That's the end of the joke. But no, then the wife comes out and says, what, what's been going on? He's like, he's eating the wax fruit. And she says, that's the third apple that's gone missing this week. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. They really take the joke to, you know, the most ridiculous end. I mean, you know. Right. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if you ever watched Saturday Night Live. Saturday, yeah. This is the thing that Saturday Night Live has forgotten how to do. They don't have punchlines for the skits anymore. They just, and they don't escalate. Right. It's just one joke repeated. Right. Like Laurel and Hardy jokes, you know, they start funny and then they get funnier and then they hit you with the punchline. And this is something I actually want to talk about in comparison to other screen comedians. Like, because it's a very different style of comedy than the Marx Brothers, where the Marx Brothers, oh, yeah. it's just rapid, just absolute insanity. And with Laurel and Hardy, it's, a, it's more of a slow burn to, mm-hmm. you know, which I think for some, maybe like today's audiences, it might be harder to, to get on board with because you do kind of have to follow the... You, you have to watch. Yeah. Like you can't, you can't just you can't half watch a Laurel and Hardy movie, and, right. and that was like the mistake I made when I was just like watching Sons of the Desert while doing something else. I'm like, oh, I don't see what the big deal is, right. because so much of, of the comedy is is visual and it's in the asides to the audience and it's in the the slow burns of of, uh, of Hardy as he gets exasperated with Stan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's much different from the Marx Brothers, which is is more of a it's more akin to like the stand up comedy that is like the dominant comedy mode today. Right. Which is, you know, one-liners and zingers. And, and sitcoms are written like Marx Brothers movies. Yeah. Nobody nobody does anything like, like Laurel and Hardy, at least that I know of today. Yeah. Uh, that kind of kind of comic es- escalation works in, in a couple of the other scenes in the film, like the interactions with Hardy and his wife, basically where she will break something over his head. Like, she gets really frustrated with him, and we see him in the foreground, her in the background. She goes and picks up a vase and hits him over the head with it. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty funny. And then we cut to a close-up of him as he's like, oh, I, gee, hit me over the head. And then from off screen, another vase comes flying in and hits I, him on the head. I wrote that down because I thought the, the framing of that was just genius. Because And it's a long take. Like He's yep. sitting there on the ground for a long time, and you know she's off screen, and you know it's coming, and he's just sitting there and... And then, bam, just smacks him. And then... It's it's, it's the use of, of off-screen space, of, mm-hmm. of we know she's out there, we know something's coming, but he does not. Right. Uh, and it creates, you know, it, it's a classic kind of comedy construction, and we don't see that. You won't see off-screen space used in an Apatow movie. Right. No, absolutely. Uh, uh, they're, the, they're... the last thing that really did it well was uh, News Radio, and, and uh, Donna Bowman, she did a great series of, of recaps of the, the sitcom News Radio, and, and that was one of the things that she pointed out about the show was its use of off-screen space, so, uh, people you know just running in from, from off-camera as like these really kind of old-school kind of gags. And you see that kind of thing in, in Laurel and Hardy. It, in, it, um, it happens a few times in, in Sons of the Desert. Yeah, well, going to the, back to what you were saying about her throwing the pots and pans, 
you know, that gag culminates at the very end of the film as she runs into the kitchen and you just see, and it's a static shot of her taking every piece of cookery out of the, of the uh, cabinets and piling them up. And she, I mean, and it goes on for a long time. And then Hardy says, what are you doing? And then the great thing is, is that they cut to Laurel in his uh, adjoining, you know, apartment and you don't even see her, you know, throwing this stuff. You just know it's happening because the rattling of the right, walls. Right, like the walls rattling, the pictures around you hear, like, the crashes, and, and you hear Ollie uh, screaming in agony. Right. And, then, and then you cut back to Ollie, and he's sitting on the floor, you know, just covered in broken crockery. Yeah. And, you know, he's like, uh, you know, looking at the audience, like, oh, I've just been beat up by my wife. And then another pot comes flying yeah. at his head <laughs> off screen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really great. The one thing that didn't work for me was the Texan. It was too grating for me. Uh, I mean, he's in it very fleetingly. He's only in one scene. He's he's coincidentally, and this this goes to show how ridiculous the plotting of this movie is. Is they get to Chicago, they're having a great time at their Sons of the Desert, you know, uh, parades and parties and stuff. And they go to this party and they meet this Texan who's very brash and he's you know always setting up practical jokes for people and he's just a rude kind of guy um, and. He meets uh, Stan and, and Oliver and, and finds out that they're from L.A. And he says, oh, I have a sister in L.A. And, of course, it's Ollie's wife. It's Ollie's wife. And they get on the phone and they call her and stuff, uh, which is hilarious. I mean, that's really great stuff. But for some reason, that character he played was was just unpleasant to me. Um, and, and, and it's a very minor know, thing. It, it kind of, he kind of embodies to me what I imagine a drunken Texan would be like. <laughs> So I, you know, I, I would give it props for its for some verisimilitude. Okay, I, I can see that. I can see that. But but truly, that's really my only qualm with this movie. Um, but but in that scene, that party scene where they're in like a ballroom and stuff, um, the filmmaking in that scene is really interesting too. Particularly the dance number that's shown, where there's like these half naked women dancing uh, in hula skirts. Yeah. And there's one shot that's taken from like the far corner of the room and there's in the foreground there there's like audience you know watching the dancers and then the dancers behind them and it's really dark and it's a really interesting shot and then it goes to this busby berkeley shot which do you was it intentional for that shot to look as crappy as it does like uh, the the performers in the scene the dancers they're not in sync with each other. The girl that's in the middle of the twirling Busby Berkeley-esque, you know, uh, dance number, she's not in the middle. She's, like, off to the left a little bit. Do you think that was intentional or they were just like, let's cut this and go kind of thing? Either uh, way, I think it's great. Yeah, I I don't know. In, in Intentionality in, in film criticism is a, a sucker's game. It's true. Uh, whether it was intended or not, if it's funny, it works. Well, exactly. You know, it, at, first I was like, uh, at first I was like, wow, this looks really crappy. That's really funny. Uh, you know, are, they, are they poking fun at Busby Berkeley or, or were they just too cheap to redo it? You know what I mean? Uh, but like you said, the ultimate end game is that it's hilarious and yeah. um, it's really great. I agree. I, I loved it. And, you know, I, I really need to get back to the Laurel and Hardy project because I'm just about at the point where they actually become an official comedy team, like, like 15, 16 movies into, into the box sets. But, uh, you know, I just, I love watching them so much and I love, I love them. I, 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 love, I love those guys. I, I love the Laurel and Hardy. <laughs> They're fantastic. Like, uh, where would you, re- if somebody had never seen a Laurel and Hardy movie, what would you recommend they start with? Music box. 
I, I, I think, I think the music box is, is just one of the greatest things ever made. I, I really do. I, I think it's up there with uh, Sherlock Jr. and, and all those other greats. Now, do you think, do you think that just because it's funny or do you think that there is like hidden depth to the music box? Well, you could look at it as, you know, as the Sisyphus, you know, um, parable or whatever, you know, which is, you know, we kind of touched on this with, with Ishtar. It's like, there's no, you can't criticize funny right? because like what's funny to me may not be funny to you, right? but you can talk about other things. And I think the best Laurel and Hardy movies, the best comedies have some kind of, of subtext. Like one of the reasons why duck soup is the best Marx brothers movie is because it doesn't have any stupid songs. Like, all the songs are hilarious. It doesn't have, like, Harpo playing the harp. Um, but another reason is because it has, you know, this kind of political satire undercurrent that, that something like, uh, you know, the Coconuts doesn't have. But what's great, but, but to flip that a little bit, what's great about Duck Soup is it has that, but that is so unimportant to what Duck Soup is. Like, it's there, sure. You can talk about how, you know, it makes a mockery of war and makes a mockery of governments and stuff. Right, kind of like Ishtar, you know, it has this Cold War element, but it's, you know, it's more about these characters. Like, Duck Soup has this this inter-World uh, War I, between, between World War One and World War Two political satire. Mm-hmm. But really, it's about Groucho and Margaret Dumont. Right, yeah. So, you know, going back to the music box, you know... I guess maybe subconsciously, like, I, I, can, I think it's great because, you know, the plight of man, the futile nature of mankind trying to achieve something when ultimately you end up dead. I guess I could say that that's there, but for all intents and purposes, it's just fucking hilarious. Uh, what, what about you? If you, had to, if you had to pick a Laurel Hardy. Uh, I might go with Two Towers, like I said, yeah. because that was the one that got me hooked, but uh, I, I don't know that everyone else has my... Uh, my enjoyment of anarchic car crash comedy. So, so I think it's probably, a pretty universal theme. Probably the music box, maybe, maybe even Sons of the Desert. Yeah, Sons of the Desert, it's great. Um, I'm, I'm actually going, um, they're doing Way Out West at SIF for this uh, slapstick thing, and they're also doing a, a Laurel Hardy shorts package, and I'm hoping to get to both of those. If not, I'm just going to do the feature, but uh, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, I haven't seen any of the ones that are playing at SIF, like, because I'm trying to stick strictly to the chronological order, so... A lot of, like, the more acclaimed stuff I just haven't gotten to yet, so I, I, I don't know. Yeah, two tars, music box, Sons of the Desert, can't go wrong with any of those. You, you really can't. With that, we're going to hear a little bit more from ZZ Top. Uh, this song is called Asleep in the Desert.
Okay, thank you ZZ Top for that lovely, lovely instrumental selection there. Next week we will be discussing, like we said earlier in the show, Wong Kar Wai's new film, The Grand Master. Um, we'll be pairing that with A Touch of Zen. We'll also be picking our Cinema Central fight scenes and discussing the career of Wong Kar Wai on the whole. This week, reps stuff, I'm going to be really obvious and go with the theme of this show and just say if you're in Seattle, go to Sif's uh, Slapstick Savants because I'm literally spending the entire week there, so I really can't pick anything besides that. Uh, my pick is also going to be for uh, the local Seattle audiences, uh, The Grand Illusion, in addition to playing uh, Andrew Bujalski's Computer Chess, which I really want to see, but probably I won't make it out of the house. Uh, they're playing Videodrome on, uh, I think, uh, Friday and Saturday night, the 30th and 31st, to go along with... Uh, they're doing this whole VHS thing. Yeah. Rewind This. Rewind This yeah. is what it's called. It's like a documentary about VHS or something like that. And apparently it was shot in, in Scarecrow for a little bit. So you mm-hmm. can see some some of our Scarecrow friends in there. Anyway, uh, Videodrome is a David Cronenberg movie with, with James Woods and I haven't seen it, but I really want to. It's yeah, one of those movies it. that that uh, has been like on the top of my to-see list for a long time, and I've just never managed to do it. So if I do manage to get out of the house, I might try to make it out to Videodrome. Yeah, Cronenberg scares me. Um, I I, <laughs> I would like to see more Cronenberg stuff. I've seen His Crash and uh, Naked Lunch, um, one of which I liked a lot, and one of them which I did not care for so much. And I'll let we, you decide which one is we, we played The Fly. That's a really good movie. I know, I've still never seen it. I wasn't there for that. You weren't there for that. No, no. I wasn't there for that night. Uh, I really like his his uh, more recent movies. Uh, his uh, Cosmopolis with uh, I like Cosmopolis. Uh, uh, History of Violence. I like Eastern Promises. Is okay. Yeah, I need to get on that train. Did you see uh, Dangerous Method? Yeah, I like that too. There you go. Yeah, early, early Cronenberg though. I I know I know nothing. I haven't seen anything prior to The Fly. So. Yeah. Yeah creeps me out. He is creepy. He is, he's also Canadian. So. He's, he is Canadian. Canadians you gotta watch are, out. Canadians are creepy. Yeah, Michael J. Fox. You can contact us uh, for the show at thegeorgesandersshow at gmail.com. Um, you can also find us on the Twitter at geosandersshow. Um, our website is thegeorgesandersshow.blogspot.com. Uh, I have a feeling we're going to have a lot of notes for this show. We'll link to Sean's Laurel and Hardy project um, and then try to get some of the short films we talked about linked up there as well. Um, this week um, is going to be a little different. We're sending you off in a different way. Uh, we usually do uh, our namesake, George Sanders, singing you away. But today we're going to do the world premiere of the single from the rap album that my brother and I have been collaborating on. Uh, he did the music for this one, and I got the white boy rapping on this. So here you go, people. World premiere. This is Yo Day. Yo, yo. This is some Oakmont style. That's right. 2011. 1986. Deer on your lawn. Old ladies in golf carts. Blue hair. Yo, yo. They rock till dawn. Ready? Let's go. Sunday morning, waking up late When I say late, I mean something like 8, maybe 8.15, never 8.30 Hop in the shower cause your face is so dirty Got the head and shoulders, rinse and repeat Old Spice rocking, slippers on your feet Head to the kitchen, robe on your frame Still a half hour till the Packers game Crank the K-Fog, acoustic sunrise Getting that chronicles like winning a prize Open up the pink section, where's the little man? Mick, John, and Aiden, that's your clan Got your favorite pen and a crossword puzzle There's no such joy like completing the jumble, rumble in your belly, it must be fed. Peanut butter jelly, toasted bread. Talk about an OJ, a bowl of special K. Hey, hey, dad, yo, this is your day. Hey, hey, dad, yo, this is your day. This is your day. 
Costco. Get some toilet paper.